Welcome to another gospel message from St. Luke's Anglican Church, Clovelly. Slightly blurry. Um, and you could only watch it on a TV screen after kind of long, 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 you know, on a tape download process. He took it to the executives at Kodak and they dismissed it. Um, no one wants to look at photos on a screen. Print's been around for 100 years. It's so cheap and inexpensive and people are used to it. In fact, it wasn't the only time that Kodak has made a few of those um, little moments of living in denial of the future. And in 2012, Kodak Eastman filed for bankruptcy. Gone. Now, today's Bible text is about how your view of the future shapes the way you live in the present. And the truth is, the future has always shaped the way humans operate in the present. That's been the, tr- the case since day one of our existence. I mean, how did Satan tempt our first parents? Take the fruit. Don't worry about God's instruction. You know better than God. So you, you're the one who should choose. And then the clincher, you will not surely die. A denial of the future that led them into temptation. So your view of the future shapes how you live in the present. You got it? Now we're staying this new year, um, thinking about new life from the most significant chapter in the Bible about new life, which is 1 Corinthians 15, about resurrection. And what we're seeing is there's a link between Jesus' resurrection in history and in the presence of eyewitnesses is linked to your resurrection and mine in the future, at the end of history, in the presence of our creator and judge. And friends, whether you're a Christian or not, actually, we all want to know the future, don't we? Because how you view the future shapes your present. And friends, if you don't get this today, you will waste your life. If you get it, you'll live a life of purpose, significance, and lasting meaning. You can make an eternal difference. But the, the future that Paul has in mind, it's not just about um, the digital photography revolution or even electric cars or whatever it is that's next. It's not even just about, you know, 2018. Some of us are sitting here thinking, you know, I wonder what this year will bring, good or bad. No, Paul's interested in the longer. He's talking about your whole life, your whole eternal life. And we're going to look at three points. The first thing is, and you follow on your outline, the first thing is, Your future resurrection is the most natural thing in God's world. Now that seems completely perfect. That's what the Bible says. You struggle with that? It's kind of nice to know the Corinthians did too. And so Paul helps them by kind of debating this imaginary opponent, a a, a cynic really. So let's pick it up from verse uh, 35. He says, Uh, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 35. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? I think it's a kind of sceptic's question, not an instant one. You foolish person. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. What you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or of some other grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. Not all flesh is the same. There is one kind of humans, another animals, another birds, another fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind, and the glory of the earthly is of another. 
the one glory of the sun, another glory of the moon, another glory of the stars, the star differs from star and glory. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable, what's raised is imperishable. It's sown in dishonor, it's raised in glory. It's sown in weakness, it's raised in power. It's sown a natural body, it's raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. that today um, but even putting Jesus resurrection aside for a moment Paul says your resurrection that you will have a new body on the other side of death and eternity is the most natural thing in God's world God's built it into the natural world in fact there's a natural process akin to resurrection and it's called a seed a seed now, um, a seed, right? Uh, we threw some pumpkin seeds, um, obviously, into the compost. And you know, when I tipped it over there, just kind of growing from everywhere. But that little seed's about the size of your thumbnail, right? You know what a pumpkin seed It looks nothing like the plant, which is this crazy sprawling vine taking over our back garden at the moment. It looks, you know, one's kind of hard and, you know, stony, and the other's kind of soft and green and lush. They look different. But as enormous as that transformation is from a seed into this, you know, kind of thriving, living plant, um, it's the most natural thing in the world, isn't it? Seeds become plants. You know about that. We learned that in kind of year one in the Petri dish with the little kind of, you know, um, the seeds. We know about it. It's been happening since, well, since Adam was boy. In fact, Paul's language actually echoes Genesis, Adam and Eve. Um, day three, Genesis 1.11, God says, Let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed. Fruit trees bearing which is there, seed. Each according to its kind. The whole process of throwing out a pumpkin tree. It's the most natural thing in the world. In God's world. And that's the only world there is. In fact, it's only when the pumpkin is like cut off the vine and effectively dies that then its seed is able to bear fruit and bring new life. And so Paul's saying the fact that this, this body, the natural body, um, the fact that this natural body will die and that you are raised with a spiritual body is the most natural thing in God's world. Although we see people die and it seems so final to us, it doesn't mean it's the end for them. So remember, your future resurrection is as natural as a seed turning into a plant. And although the seed and the plant are so very different, everything, everything in the plant is like they're inherent in the seed. Isn't that amazing? It's all there in the seed. We, we will be transformed like that. In fact, Paul says we need to be transformed like that into a new kind of body. Do you notice there's all that language about different kinds of bodies? 
That, that's important because you and I need to be transformed into a, a new kind of body that's fitting for God's new world. Because these old natural bodies, well, they get old, don't they? And they get sick. And they get tired. And they get chronic fatigue. And they get out of whack. And you and I need these bodies to be transformed into spiritual bodies that are, what are some of the words Paul uses? Glorious and spiritual and powerful. Now, one day, that friend of mine who has muscular dystrophy and is confined to a wheelchair, one day, he's going to sprint the 100 metres. One day, that friend with depression will truly be herself. And when Paul talks about spiritual bodies, it's not um, spiritual versus physical, as if to say, you know, one day you'll have a Casper the Friendly Ghost kind of body. It's not that. Um, He's talking about the power source. Right? A steam train isn't made of steam, it's powered by steam. A spiritual body is still a body, but is powered by God's Holy Spirit in God's new world. Paul kind of puts um, all this a different way, um, just ever so briefly. He says, you know, if, if in the beginning we were patterned on the first man, the first Adam, Adam just means man actually, if we were patterned on the first man, now that Jesus has come, the fulfillment of humanity, we will be patterned on the second man, the last Adam. So Paul writes, verse 49, Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. Now Paul doesn't fill in all the details, but... You know, it's interesting, Jesus, when he was risen from the dead and appeared to his disciples, he ate food, right? Very deliberately, because he had a physical body. A new body, but a physical body. In eternity, we'll have a physical body patterned on Jesus and powered by the Spirit. Your future resurrection body won't be so different that, you know, um, that I'll say, oh, gosh, I never knew you were six foot. It's it's not that. Um, What we'll say is something like, Ah, I can see it now. I can see this is who you were always meant to be. We will be the most ourselves we've ever been. We will be the most fulfilled we've ever been because we will finally be like Jesus. Like Jesus. Strange to us, but your resurrection is the most natural thing in God's world. And that means, secondly... Your death is not the last word on your life, okay? Your death is not the last word on your life. Let's uh, pick it up from verse 50. The apostle writes, I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God 
who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Isn't it good to know that death doesn't get the last word? Isn't that good to know? Death, the the tragedy unleashed by our first parents in Genesis 3 that has, has infected all of their children, you and me. Death, that great shroud or covering or veil of Isaiah 25 that blankets the nations in darkness and sickness and suffering. Death, that great mocker of any lasting meaning in life in the book of Ecclesiastes. But when that one man suffered the death the rest of us deserve and then came back to life again, for the first time in history, death lost. Because Jesus won. And Paul says, so do we. It's like um, Kathy Freeman, you know, runs the 400 metres and wins gold, all the applause. You know what? Those moments we kind of celebrate, it's like it's, it's our victory too. We're Australians, for those of us who are. Um, but you, know, you know what I mean, right? Um, we share in that victory, right? Um, Paul's saying the victory that Jesus has won includes all who side with him. It includes us. We share in it. One day, death will be on the receiving end of the mocking. Death, where's your victory and sting? You got nothing. And now, already, there is a victory because we have a confidence in the face of death. I want you to just notice um, a little aside here. Um, The great sting of death isn't just death. It's not just the farewells and it's not just the absence. The sting of death is, what did it say? Sin. Now, we should debate this one later, but I think this is different to Romans 6.23. Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is death, right? If you sin, you get to payday, you get death. I think this is saying something different. That is, the sting of death, the reason that death haunts us and hurts us is because on the other side of death, our sin finally catches up with us. That is, we face the judgment seat of God. And our sin condemns us. And there's no point saying, hey, but I kept the Ten Commandments because actually the sting of sin, uh, the power of sin is the law. And the law shows that you failed the Ten Commandments. You haven't kept them. The law is what condemns us before God, which means our hope in all that is the gospel of Jesus, which started this chapter, actually. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 3 says, you know, as of first importance, Christ died... For our sins, to take away the sting of our sins. It's like, um, you know, imagine the three year old girl who's, you know, fatally allergic to bee stings. And she's playing at the bottom of the garden, the sun's shining, and kind of, then dad, you know, from the house hears that kind of, you know, death knell, that buzz of the bee. It kind of runs for the bottom of the garden. And sees his little girl, you know, on her bike and notices the bee, you know, right beside her finger on the handlebar. And decides it's too risky and the best thing to do is to to smother the bee and take the sting so that the sting cannot hurt his daughter. In Jesus' death, he takes the sting by paying the price of our sin so that there's no sting left. In Jesus' resurrection, 
he shows that death no longer has the last word because the sting of sin, it's all gone and dealt and done with. Life has the last word. So in all sorts of ways, Paul's saying here, your death is not the last word on your life. Death does not win. In fact, especially because, verse 51 says, you may never die. You may never die. Now, um, the earlier kind of section that we've already looked at, um, Paul's dealing with the question of how do those who are kind of you know, rotting corpses in the ground get new bodies? How's that work? And he's kind of answered some of that. But verse 51, um, that section is dealing with kind of one last question, which is what's going to happen for those who are still alive when Jesus returns? What will happen to them? And Paul explains that it'll happen in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, when God calls full time on history, what will happen? The dead will be raised and we'll all be changed. Even if you're not dead, you'll still be changed. Those perishable bodies will become imperishable and the mortal bodies will become immortal. So, Jesus' return is more certain than your death. believe that? Jesus' return is more certain than your death. The shape of your future is not the circle of life, but resurrection to judgment. And so is every other person on this planet. Now friends, that means that this life is not a pointless game where what you do doesn't really matter because death, (laughs) because death ruins it. No, Revelation 14 assures Christians that because of the resurrection of Jesus, in the resurrection of us all, our deeds will follow us. It's kind of a beautiful line. How we live now matters for eternity. And if death is not the last word in your life, if your future resurrection is the most natural thing in the world, how does that future shape your present? So let me ask, do you think of this life as a supermarket? In fact, um, hands up those of you who remember The Price is Right. Who remembers that? Oh, yeah, enough of you for this illustration. Do you remember at, um, at the end there was a kind of game where, well, maybe this was a different trashy TV show. Anyway, there was like 60 seconds and the teams had to like race around this kind of pretend supermarket and like pick up the things that would cost the most. You know, um, do you kind of think of life as this kind of supermarket where you're like just racing through buying stuff to kind of, you know, somehow get some meaning out of life? Do you think of life as a different one, a cafe? Actually, just, you know what? I don't want to do all that kind of mad racing around, the rat race. I'm just going to chill out. I'm going to check out of that life and soak up the ambience. I'll have another latte, thanks. Or do you think of this life as a dressing room for eternity? Because that's that's the implication. Because... (laughs) God doesn't want you to waste your life, to live your life in vain. And that's where Paul finishes this chapter. Jesus' new life will save you from wasting your life. So it um, comes to this last chapter, uh, last verse, very last verse of uh, 1 Corinthians 15. Verse 58. Therefore... My beloved brothers, sisters, be steadfast, 
immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labour is not in vain. There's two parts. Um, The first is, don't budge an inch. Don't budge a millimetre from the gospel of Jesus as first delivered by the apostles in the New Testament. Because, you know what, friends? Eternity is on the line. Because it's the gospel of Jesus, and only the gospel, chapter 15, verse 2, by which you are being saved. And then Paul says, chapter 15, verse 2, if you hold fast to it. It's interesting, actually. Chapter 15 starts and finishes in the same place. Hold fast, verse 2, be immovable, verse 58. Don't move from the gospel of Jesus. And presumably, the Bible repeats that because it's so easy to forget that, to live in denial of the future. And friends, our society, especially our Western society, is so utterly preoccupied with blinkers for this life. We hardly barely ever give a thought to the next life. In fact, you may never think about eternity until you open your Bible or come to church. And if you're new here, and maybe you've come to church, you kind of go, hang on, this is all a bit, little bit weird, because suddenly we're talking about where we're all going to spend eternity. And I'm just kind of trying to work out how I'm going to fit in the grocery shopping this week. I'm just kind of heads down. And it would be tempting to think that, the, you know, Paul's so out of touch with, like, real life. Except maybe, just maybe, the Bible's in touch with reality. And we've lost our perspective. We're the ones in denial of the future. So, never move from the gospel of the Lord Jesus. And, second part, always abound in the work of the Lord knowing that in the Lord your labour is not in vain. Presumably Paul says this because um, you could get distracted from the work of the Lord. And And because there's a lot of work and stuff that you do in this life that could be in vain. That could just be a massive waste of time. Now I've just been on holidays for, you know, a week and I... Let me tell you, building sandcastles is a fun beach holiday activity with, you know, toddlers, but uh, it has no lasting significance. <laughs> it gets washed over. Billy, say, Billy goes closer to the waves and says, let's build another one. I'm like, no, 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 up the beach, up the beach. Maybe you've had that experience. You know, your, your pet project at work gets scratched. You poured your life into it. Um, That garden you love gets destroyed overnight by the bugs. That renovation you're kind of, you know, kind of consumed with. Um, In 30 years' time, uh, people are going to go, oh, they went for Caesar stone granite tops. What were they thinking? You can't imagine it now, right? But someone's going to look back and go, oh, that's awful. That's the way it works. There's just so much that is fleeting in this life. But here's the Bible saying that the work of the Lord lasts into eternal life. So what does that mean? It's important to work out what's that mean, the work of the Lord. And 
the danger is kind of defining it too narrowly or too widely. We mustn't define it too narrowly so that it kind of means something like um, being a paid Christian minister. As if Paul's trying to say, you know, every Christian should become a pastor or die trying. No, Paul spent most of chapter 7 kind of trying to show that whatever your station in life is, that's, that's a perfectly good place to serve the Lord Jesus and to do the work of the Lord. So we can't kind of define it too narrowly. We mustn't define it too widely either to kind of just mean, well, any work that Christians do. It can't mean that. That There are other parts of the New Testament that talk about the dignity of all our work. That's true. It's just not the issue here. Paul uses, um, interestingly, Paul uses the same phrase in chapter 16, verse 10. That's the closest context where he says that Timothy is doing the work of the Lord just as I, Paul, am. He's talking about the type of work that specifically promotes the gospel of Jesus and that every Christian, he's not talking to pastors, he's talking to brothers, sisters, every Christian is to give themselves to the work of the gospel, to see others become Christians and grow as Christians. And we might say, ah, sure, but... um, There's a lot of other stuff on my plate as well in life. And that's true. In fact, in the very next verse, chapter 16, Paul devoted actually quite a bit of his time away from sharing the gospel to raising money for the poor Christians in Jerusalem. It's called the collection, and it's in quite a lot of the New Testament letters. Um, Even as a church, there's other things that uh, we do, like serve espresso coffee. That's not gospel work, but... It kind of keeps some of you awake during the gospel work, right? So that's, it facilitates something. And morning tea time where we interact with each other and encourage each other with, the, with encouraging scriptural words. I think and we've, we've all got other work to do, that's true. But this is calling us to abound always in the work of the Lord. I think the best way is to, as much as possible, to do the work of the Lord in your work. Um, Go to lunch with your colleagues. Um, Pray while you're waiting in the car line to pick up the kids. Um, Leave on time so you can go to community group. In fact, um, here's uh, Rory's summary. Uh, Rory Shiner spoke at our weekend away last year and he's got a book on uh, resurrection. He's good at summary. So here you go. This is on the screen. Paul is not telling the Corinthians to all become pastors or missionaries, but he is telling them in the light of the resurrection to pay particular attention and give particular energy to the work of the Lord, to those labours that are particularly directed at promoting the gospel, such as bearing witness at work, sharing the gospel with children at Sunday school, singing loudly at church, giving to missions, etc., abound in that work. See what he's saying? Christians especially, we mustn't live in denial of the future. Because resurrection will happen... Mission must happen, and we're all in it together. Now, as we finish up, I need to ask, are you on board? Are you on board? I mean, our vision as a church is about new life in Christ for our whole community, I mean, we're, we're just not going to stop at this until every single person around us become a Christian. 
We're going to be at this for a while, right? Um, I say, let's go for it in 2018. I mean, let's make this new year make a diff- an eternal difference. Let's go for it. So are you on board? As much as you're kind of, you know, um, thinking about your career and trying to promote yourself at work, will you promote the gospel in your workplace? As much as you're immersed in study this year, will you immerse yourself in study of the scriptures this year? As much as you give your money to lifestyle or maybe even to charity for the poor, will you give your money to the work of the gospel that relieves eternal suffering? As much stress as you give to the renovation, will you give the same stress to your friend's salvation? In fact, let's turn New Year, New Life on its head. You know, that, you know the phrase, right? New Year, New Me. The problem is it's almost always about me. In fact, I read this week, um, there's a guy who's written a book about the whole self-improvement. It's like a $6 billion industry, right? Um, he's, he's written a book where he spent a year just trying to kind of do self-improvement. In fact, self-improvement's not enough now. It's called self-optimization. Okay, we're after perfection here, team. Um, he spent a year... He said at the end of the year of trying to improve himself, almost to the exclusion of everything else, he got to the end of the year, his, this guy's wife was pregnant with their second child and their relationship was suffering because he spent so much time trying to improve himself. Let's not do New Year, New You. Let's do New Year, New Life for others. Who is it this year that you are praying for and helping to find new life in Jesus for eternity. To find new life in the one who rose to life and who guarantees your eternal life. Let's pray. Thank you for listening. For more information about St. Luke's Anglican Church, please visit www.clovelly.org.au.